one day I remember I fainted during a lesson and she saw me about to fall and uh, she grabbed the fiddle. She let me fall and grabbed the fiddle, <laughs> which <laughs> looking back is probably the right way to go. <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and anyone familiar with traditional Irish music knows the name Kevin Burke. Kevin is an outstanding fiddler who has performed with groups such as the Bothy Band, Patrick Street, the Celtic Fiddle Festival, and Open House. I first heard Kevin perform live in concert with guitarist Michal O'Donnell at the Augusta Heritage Program in Elkins, West Virginia, in 1981. I was, to borrow a phrase from Bob Dylan, knocked out loaded by what I heard. Never had music transported me so completely and effortlessly from the realm of the ordinary to that of the sublime. It was, in fact, one of a handful of experiences I've had that serve as mileposts in my journey through life. So when I met Paula in Pittsburgh in 1986, and she mentioned having attended the same concert and been similarly moved by the force of Kevin's music, I began to think that we might well spend the rest of our lives together. Okay, so this is part one of a two-part podcast featuring my conversation with Kevin Burke that I recorded at his home in Portland, Oregon in 2017. But let's first listen to Kevin play a pair of tunes from his music CD, Across the Black River. The titles of the tunes are The Surround and the Red Stockings, is accompanied on the guitar by Cal Scott. Thank you. 
Let's start just talking about your family background, where you grew up, and again, any music that came through the family or things of that sort. Well, both of my parents came from a place called Sligo, in the west of Ireland, an area renowned for its music, particularly fiddle and flute music. And they um, moved to England after the war. Um, my father spent his wartime mostly in the British Navy, but just after the war he joined the Palestine Police, which was uh, um, put in place to help with the uh, formation of Israel. When that was finished in 1948, um, he left Palestine and uh, eventually joined the London police. And around that time, my mother moved to England also. She was a tailor. And uh, a year or two later, they married. And I was born in 1950 in Hackney in the East End of London. So I grew up there with my parents uh, in a household that had a great love for traditional Irish music, particularly the music of Sligo and the fiddle and flute music of Ireland. So I grew up listening to a lot of that. My parents didn't play, but there were musicians on both sides of the family. My father's father played. My father, on the other side, he had his mother's sister, and my grandmother's sister played. And on my mother's side, uh, she had an uncle. Her dad's brother was a really great fiddle player. So it was on both sides of the family, but my parents themselves didn't play. Uh, but they wanted uh, me to have the opportunity. Uh, so there weren't any Irish musicians in the neighbourhood. Um, and they decided that if they sent me to a classical teacher, I could learn about the instrument. And through hanging around with my parents and their friends who would sometimes come and visit, um, I could learn about the music that way. Because a lot of their friends... Uh, did play music. Um, people would come and visit, um, play music in the house. But uh, most of these people weren't really in a position to give uh, a young fella like me regular lessons. So I went to the classical lady for the lessons and then socially, informally, I learnt about the Irish music. At the time, um, we're talking about the 60s really, the 1960s, there was a lot of great music in London. If you chose um, your favourite four or five players on any instrument, fiddle, flute, pipes, accordion, there were probably three or four of those top five living in London. So I had access to some of the great Irish players of the day and also... They were all from different regions of Ireland. So I had access to 
the various regional styles. So where did the, uh, the classical training come in? And was either of your parents sort of wondering if you might go that direction with the classical instead of the traditional? Um, you know, I don't know. I interviewed Winifred Horan, oh, yeah. Solis, and uh, her father got her started on classical music, and he was quite determined that's the path she needed to go, that in his idea was the legitimate path for music. And uh, she came back to the Irish traditional music much later, and it, it caused her quite a, a conflict. Yeah, that, that didn't... Uh... That didn't occur in my house. My parents had very little interest in classical music. Um, but uh, they, they, um, they didn't uh, allow me to relax in the studies just because it wasn't their thing, you know. Um, they sent me to the lessons and I was expected to um, do what the teacher said and work at it. And I did. Um, maybe not quite as hard as I could or should have done, but um, you know, I was, I was a, a reasonable student. But I also played a lot of Irish music at the same time. So you, what age were you when you started the lessons? I think I, think I was seven. I, 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 was, I think I was almost eight, but not quite. And what was she like as a teacher? <laughs> she, she was strict. At least I thought so. She was an old um, Victorian lady, uh, small bad eyesight, very forthright, not at all a shrinking violet, um, kind of impatient. But at the same time, uh, I kind of liked her a lot. Um, brusque was our manner. She had no, she had no time for... Uh, uh, she was not wishy-washy about anything, quite direct. Uh, and, of course, you have to remember, again, this was just after the war. So people were very... Uh, they were very used to the idea that things are not going right, but you have to make the best of it. Getting depressed and complaining about things was not the way to go. So she had, that's what I mean by very brusque and forthright. She had very little time for uh, anything other than getting on with what you're supposed to be doing. She was a truck driver during the war, which always made me laugh because she was tiny. And the idea of this woman driving a big truck, probably full of munitions, <laughs> always made me uh, kind of smile to myself. She was everything that we weren't. Like, she was terribly British, the kind of family that was built, that, you know, built the empire. Wealthy family. Her, 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 her father, I think, owned coal mines, which uh, in those days was the equivalent to 
own in oil wells today, you know. Very wealthy. Um, she... Uh, they, they, the family lost most of the men, if not all the men, during the two wars. There were three sisters left that I knew. Um, and they sold nearly everything. They sold their interests in the mines and uh, just lived on the proceeds, I suppose. And the area of London that they were in was not a very... Uh, it was very much a working-class place. It wasn't a posh place. So they were a little bit out of, uh, out of context. They, they had a big house, uh, and I think the neighbourhood before the war was quite a salubrious place, but after the war, um, probably because of the bombing and the way populations migrate... It became very much a working-class area. Uh, but they stayed there and not really needing money. They taught music. That's all they really knew how to do, I think. They taught music to the local kids, of which I was one. And um, when I look back at what they charged, I mean, it was a joke. They, they charged hardly anything for it. And even... Um, you know, my mother would often do... Uh, tailor work, you know, alterations to clothes or lengthening curtains or stuff like that, in lieu of paying them for my lessons, you know, or paying her for my lessons. Um, she had a sister, Ethel, uh, my teacher was called Jessie, Jessie Christofferson, and she had a sister, uh, Ethel, who also taught in the same building. She was mainly piano. My teacher taught piano um, and the stringed instruments. What kind of violin did she have? Do you have any reckon? Uh, I don't know, really. She gave me, she gave me, like the first few weeks I had a three-quarter size fiddle. And then she gave me one of hers saying, you'll grow into the full size. So I played on that for a while. And then when I was probably about 10... Uh, I, my parents bought one of my own and gave her back her fiddle. Um, I've no idea what kind of fiddle it was, except it was her fiddle when she was a kid. Uh, she said she used to play bat and ball with it, with her sisters, just turn it around and use it as a bat. <laughs> she started playing when she was three. Um, one day I remember I fainted during a lesson, and she saw me about to fall, and uh, she grabbed the fiddle. She let me fall and grabbed the fiddle, <laughs> which, <laughs> looking back, is probably the right way to go. <laughs> um, what made you faint? I have no idea. Probably, I probably spent my dinner money on a bar of chocolate or, you know... <laughs> two cans of Coke or something, I don't know. Um, probably probably just a too long a day, you know, not enough food or growing, you know. I was, I was probably about 13, so maybe I was just growing quicker than I could cope with. But it was a long day. I, you know, I, I, I used to go to school and then after school, I'd have the music lessons, and it was a fair old distance. I'd have to take a bus and a fairly long walk 
to get to her house, and then um, f from her house, I'd have a really long walk uphill to get to the bus stop that would take me home, and that was a that was a long journey. She lived much nearer the school than she did my home, because we moved when I was eight or nine. We left the area, but I stayed on as her student. But musically, she was very broad-minded. She loved rock and roll, was a big fan of The Who, Rolling Stones, um, would listen to them on the radio all the time and thought that this idea of kids making their own music was fantastic, which uh, defied the stereotype. You know, as I said, she's an old lady, Victorian in upbringing, very wealthy, uh, classical musician all her life. Um, so she should have been completely anti-long-haired kids banging away on electric guitars, but far from it. She thought it was fantastic. What did you get from learning those, those techniques at that age? They come more out of what we would call generally the classical music world. How's that helped you? Well, uh, it formed how I addressed the instrument, how I embrace the instrument, you know, how, how I hold it and how I hear it and how I use it. The bow in particular, it, you know, when I give lessons to people, they're often um, taken aback when I tell them that... Uh, I view the bow as something that makes the tone and not the rhythm. And I try to divorce any rhythmic duties from the bowing. Most people seem to presume that you bow in the rhythm of the tune that you're playing. But uh, I, I feel the very opposite. Um, I don't think the rhythm of the tune has anything to do with the way you bow it. Um, but the tone that you want to produce has everything to do with the way that you bow it. So um, I think that must be something I learned from the classical lessons. Also, the, the different inflections that are available for a note. One note can be played in so many different ways. And uh, in most kinds of folk music, uh, people are familiar with it, so they have an inherent way of uh, stressing certain notes or uh, diminishing the importance of other notes, just like we do with a, with a, with our speaking accent. Um. But the, the classical lessons made me aware of that. It wasn't just an accent. It's almost like a linguist might uh, have a way of uh, differentiating the way a New Yorker might pronounce a word and a Scottish person might pronounce the same word and an Irish person might pronounce the same word. A linguistician could... Uh, hear those differences and define those differences and pay attention to them. Of course, the person from Glasgow has the best Glasgow accent around. 
without even trying. So he, a lot of the time he wouldn't be aware of the uh, the finer points of his own accent. But uh, when you start to analyse these things, of course, you find habits develop, you know, the customs, the repetitive things, exceptions to the rule. Um, so the classical lesson taught me to listen for those kind of things. That's just one brief scan of the classical world. I mean, the classical world is a huge world and they have, it's not known, it's not regarded, the classical world is not regarded as being super progressive, but they have pushed the limits of the violin to the limit. You know, they have really expanded the envelope uh, over the last couple of hundred years and they're still doing so. And I'm sure the same goes for all the other instruments they use. Uh, it's true there are very conservative aspects to that world, but um, they are musical experts after all, and they certainly live up to their name, you know. One time you were, uh, going back to this idea of Boeing, you, uh, I think I was at some workshop it was a, where there were a number of people, and uh, I have took this away. This has been something I've thought often about that the bow is like petting a cat, <laughs> the stroke. It's, it's yeah, yeah. soft at first, you get more intense halfway Ooh. through the bow stroke, and then you lighten up as the bow stroke ends. That's very true. I, I do think of it like that way, uh, like that. The, the, the word we use, the passage of the bow on the string, is the word stroke. A bow stroke, and I think it's the perfect word. That's exactly what you do as you move the bow across the string. It's, a, you know, it's no more or less than stroking the string. And that sets off this chain reaction. The string vibrates, the bridge vibrates, the top of the instrument vibrates, the back of the instrument vibrates, because they're connected by a, a post, a sound post. And then all that air inside the box vibrates and the sound comes out the F-hole, the sound hole. But it all begins with the string being stroked with the bow. That's what sets off the chain reaction. I just had this image of the, uh, the artist, the painter, the perfect line, that effort to, like a stroke. Yeah, brush stroke, very same thing. And yet the brush lays the paint on the canvas. And that's how you judge it, by the way the paint arrives on the canvas. It's not exactly, you don't judge it by the way the brush is held or the speed at which the brush moves. Uh, you judge it by how effective it is in, in laying the paint on the paper or canvas. And it's the same with the bow. How it, what it achieves is how you assess it. But of course, the way you hold it, the way you move it, the speed at which it moves... That all has a, has a big part to play in how that paint is delivered on the canvas.
And it's the same with the producing the sound. And often they're both using animal hair, the paintbrush, yeah. and yeah. So there's almost this connection with the uh, the animal world, which I I really am fascinated by. I interviewed Lori Lewis, a wonderful fiddler and songwriter, and she has several songs that really talk about this relationship between this uh, instrument and the bow and uh, the animal world. And the cat gut. Yeah. <laughs> or sheep gut, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know why it's called cat gut, because it's not cat gut. But. I think that goes back, I read... Uh, that that goes back to King Henry VIII. That he made some disparaging comment about the way these fiddlers were sounding, like they were s- scraping a bunch of cats or something. <laughs> I think that's where it comes from. So he was a critic as well as everything else he's famous for. So going back to this uh, progression, so we talked about the 60s, and you, you're taking these classical lessons, but you're also playing a lot of traditional music. And then this whole thing is happening. This counterculture is occurring with with the rock music and the different lifestyles. We're born in the same year, so I was experiencing that here in the United States. How did that start to play into where you thought this music might be taking you? Well, the the influence of, of commercial music was was the radio and other kids at school. They were rec- people were bringing records to school and swap records and all that. Um, meanwhile, I was going to pubs full of uh, Irishmen, mostly, or a lot of them working on the buildings. That was the, you know, the construction trade was the big magnet for a lot of Irish people. Um, and they they saw their music in a very different way. They weren't they weren't playing to get on the radio, or or they weren't putting together music in order to make a record. Uh, in fact, any time those traditional musicians were invited to do that which often happened, they saw it as a chore. They didn't see it as an opportunity. They saw it as a chore. Because to them, music was something you did as a relaxation from work, as a, as a way of meeting friends. The idea of going into a studio and being really quiet and waiting for the red light to go on and then play one, two, three, now, was completely bizarre to most of the people I knew. They would sit and talk and chat and play and intersperse the conversation with a tune and vice versa, intersperse the tunes with conversation and it was all part and parcel of the same thing. So it was a very social environment. in the pubs, there, of course, there was uh, a lot of drinking. Um, some drank more than others. Some didn't drink at all. But it was around. Uh, it was an environment of 
alcohol, um, which again didn't seem incongruous at all. My my father was a teetotaler, but he spent an awful lot of his free time hanging out in bars. Um, and, you know, as a policeman, uh, I'm sure a lot of the bar owners thought it was uh, kind of handy to have a friendly policeman in the pub, but most of the time he was just there as a music fan. He'd often bring me, you know, for a very young age, I started going to the pubs with him and my mother, who didn't drink either. And uh, a pub was seen as a place where you go to hear music, not necessarily to drink alcohol. And of course, there were specific pubs, Irish pubs, and that's where we'd go. And when I was a teenager, you know, 13, 14, I was old enough to go on my own, so I didn't need my parents to bring me anymore. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. So I saw this music as um, intimate, friendly, personal and fun. Um, But no one in my class at school was interested in it. They were more interested in the Supremes and the Kinks and Manfred Mann, and and I'd hear the I'd hear the conversation there, and I'd hear these groups on the radio, and I started to hear this term folk music being used a lot, and uh, it meant nothing to me really, except I'd hear the DJs on the radio talking about. Simon and Garfunkel and Peter Paul and Mary and, uh, and this was folk music. And it took me a couple of years, actually, to work out that what I was hearing in these Irish pubs was folk music. I never thought of it that way before. And I remember a kid in the class who actually was brought up for the first few years of his life in Ireland, a Dublin guy, but for all intents and purposes, he was a Londoner. Um, he gave me a Bob Dylan record, and it was it was uh, his third record, The Times They Are Changing. And this was, this was, you know, I'd heard about Bob Dylan, the brand new thing, you know, I took the record home and played it, and I loved it. I thought it was great, but not because it was new. It didn't strike me as the brand new thing at all. In fact, very much the opposite. It was exactly the kind of song I was used to, except sung in an American accent instead of an Irish accent and with a guitar accompaniment. Because uh, most of the singing that I heard was unaccompanied. Um, I remember there was a song about uh, a woman left alone, a mining town, the miner closed down, and her husband, the miner, left, probably through depression, um, 
couldn't face the idea of not being able to bring up his family. So he just took off and left her alone with the kids. Very depressing song, um, but I loved it. Um, and there were a few other songs on that album that really caught my attention. Songs of uh, hardship, uh, the human condition, uh, and how you have to kind of tough it out. Um, and, and how it's, life is not necessarily fair. So these were lots of lots of the stories were very similar to what I would hear from these Irish people I was hanging out with. Not only in song, sometimes it was just their conversation, you know, about why they had to leave home. Usually, economic and social pressure, no work, um, political strife. Um. So I really enjoyed. That Bob Dylan record, and what I enjoyed most out of the whole performance on that LP was his ability to tell the song. It was uh, it was almost like singing the song wasn't as important as telling the song. Whereas with all the other folk. Acts that I'd heard, you know, the, 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 what was referred to as folk music at the time, I found it the opposite. I found that they were very intent on, on making this sound sweet, singing sweetly, singing well, good diction, and, um, you know, everything neat and tidy about the singing. But it was almost like the story of the song actually got lost because there was so much attention paid to other aspects. At least that was the way it struck me. So I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't much of a fan of folk music. Um, when you heard Bob Dylan's album, did you ever think of playing the violin behind any of that kind of music or with it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be Bob Dylan. <laughs> Playing the fiddle. Um, yeah, I, I thought about it, but I I didn't really. I mean, there I, was very little violin, except in the bluegrass world and traditional yeah. music. But in that kind of folk music that was going through that revival, you very seldom ever heard the fiddle yeah. played. There, were, there didn't seem to be a place for the fiddle in, in a lot of that popular music. I listened to a few guys like Sugarcane Harris and some of the jazz guys, Joe Venuti, and, um, but I, I, never, I never really got there. I never really... Uh, I was stuck with the melodies. I, ne I never really developed a chord sense. I could play the melody, the tune, the song tune, but I never really got, be got behind the way that the, the guitarists all spoke in chords. You did something with Arlo Guthrie. This is maybe jumping forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that just a minute? I was in Ireland uh, in 1972 in the summer in a place called Milltown Malbay in West Clare. And uh, one morning I walked into a pub. Uh, 
there was a kind of a, a little music festival going on there. And I knew some of the local people and local musicians, so I was there visiting. Um, I would often go there when the when there wasn't a festival. Uh, just, I can't remember if I went because the festival was happening and I'd visit some of my friends, or if I went to visit some of my friends and it turned out the festival was happening. I really don't remember, but I remember I'd, I went into a pub one morning and there were four or five fellas sitting around who were, were obviously not local. And as soon as I heard them speak, it was obvious they were Americans. On the way into the pub, I bumped into a guy who was coming out and he had a fiddle in his hand, uh, a fiddle case. And I, uh, I said something to him about, oh, you're, are you going for a tune or something like that? And he was like, no, I'm going for a plane. He, had to, he was flying back to America. So I wished him well and that was that. But then when I got inside, I, he, they, I saw these four or five other guys and uh, they were all his buddies. And But they weren't leaving. They were staying on for a few more days. Turned out that guy's name was Gib Gilbo, a great fiddler from Louisiana. And the fellas inside were uh, Arlo Guthrie and some of his friends, John Pillar, guitarist, Jeffy Outlaw, a mandolin player, and a couple of other people. And uh, over the course of the next hour or so, we got chatting and playing a bit of music. And it was a nice day, and the the the, the pub was, uh, you know, we were indoors in the pub, it was kind of dark, and somebody mentioned uh be nice to sit outside somewhere. And I brought up the idea of uh, going out of town a couple of miles uh, to a place called Quilty, where we could sit uh, by the sea, sit by the cliffs, and... One of the guys had mentioned he'd love to see, he'd love to be by the ocean. That's probably what put Quilty in my head. Anyway, we drove out there and sat on the cliffs playing music for the rest of the day. And then for the next two, three days, four days, we kind of palled around a bit. And then they went back to America. And not long afterwards, I got a letter, you know, about a month later, I got a letter saying, if you fancy coming to America... October would be a good time. Here in Massachusetts, the trees all change colour then and it's kind of spectacular. You might like to see that. And we're recording a new album then. <laughs> so I said, OK. And I I booked a ticket and flew over and I got to New York and I didn't really know where I was going. Uh, I found out Massachusetts, where Arlo lived, was quite a distance from New York. It was a lot further than I thought. But I made my way up there anyway. And uh, we uh, hung around for a while. And then they told me they were going to L.A. to do some recording. And would I like to come? I said, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so, um, How old were you? I was 22, I think. So we went, I went to L.A. with them and uh, 
oh, I can't remember the name of the studio now. But it was a really old-fashioned studio, really nice place. Apparently Bing Crosby worked there a lot. Um, I, used, I should know the name. Amigo Studio, perhaps. Anyway, um, I was uh, I was very intrigued to see these guys at work, and uh, they brought in a bunch of their friends: uh, Jesse Davis, Clarence White, Ray Cooder, um, Claudia Lanier. I think she was involved in the record. Jim Keltner. Um, I didn't know any of these people from Adam, but of course I realised now they were. I was in pretty elite company. This is 1972? Yeah. Okay. It would be the tail end, like November, November 72. And were you aware of Woody Guthrie? Yeah, I was aware of Woody Guthrie, and I was aware of Arlo, because there was a guy I went to college with who, as his kind of party piece, used to recite Alice's Restaurant. So I knew, I, knew, I knew Alice's Restaurant, but I don't know if I'd ever heard Arlo do it, because I do, I do remember somebody gave me a single, you know, a 45 of Alice's Restaurant, but it was just the chorus, or, you know, it was just the sing-along bit, the narration about his whole visit to the to the recruitment office uh, wasn't wasn't involved it was just the the the, the chorus parts you know um, so I was aware of Arlo and I was aware of Woody mainly through the Bob Dylan records in fact, I think that was one of the first things I said to Arlo when I found out who he was. I said, oh, Arlo Guthrie, so Woody was your dad, is that right? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, so you must know Bob Dylan, um, which I, you know, looking back, it really it must have sounded really crass to, <laughs> to say that right away. But uh, there you go. Anyway, he was very gracious, very friendly guy, nice guy. And uh, he thought it'd be he thought it'd be uh, interesting to have some Irish music on the record, and asked me would I play a couple of tunes. So I said sure, and he asked me if I had any ideas. And uh, this kind of harks back to your question about did I ever play the fiddle? You know, did I ever think of playing the fiddle on a Bob Dylan record or anything like that? playing that kind of music. I told him that I'd heard Robert Johnson playing slide guitar. I used to listen to a blues show, the Mike Raven blues show on BBC. And one, one time he played this fella called um, Robert Johnson. And I really liked the sound of the guitar because it was a slight a bottleneck guitar, which means there's a lot more sustain than most guitars. So it felt like... Uh, I could imagine it being a bow stroke. 
more than a plucked sound, you know, a plucked string. So I just thought, would that be something that we could work with? And Alice said, oh, well, we, get, we could ask Rye. And I says, who's that? He says, oh, a friend of ours, Rye Kudra. And I, again, talk about crap. I said, well, is he any good? <laughs> and they burst, himself and John Pillar, they burst out laughing. Just kind of shook their head. And, and about 20 minutes later, like th this conversation took place in Arlo's house. We hadn't arrived in LA yet. But about 20 minutes later, this music came on. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I said, who's this? This is amazing. And I said, do you like it? I said, oh, this is, I love this. Who is this character? And they said, oh, this is, uh, this is Rai Kuda, the guy you were asking us, is he any good? <laughs> so when we got to L.A., um, I recorded a couple of tunes, and there was one tune that we did with the slight bottleneck guitar, um, which I was really excited about. But when, when it actually... I didn't know if any of this was ever going to arrive on the the album you know but when it arrived on the album it was mixed very differently it built up there was solo fiddle and there was guitar i think that or a banjo you know banjo and then the acoustic rhythm guitar and then the slide guitar and then it stopped if i knew they were going to taper it like that i'd have played a longer piece because in my mind just as it builds that's when it stops you know um should have kept going. What was the piece? It's called The Sailor's Bonnet. Some rain. Um, and what Ry Cooter did, I thought, was great. And another one we did, which didn't make it on the record, was The King of the Fairies, a slow set dance. And uh, Ry played it on the mandolin, I think. I love that tune. Yeah. Does that recording exist? I don't know. Ah. I never heard it. Um. And then I did this. I did this other set of rails, a long set of rails, um, and they layered the fiddle. They did. They did. I think they did four pairs. It turned out it was a quadraphonic recording, one of the first quadraphonic recordings. So they did four pairs of fiddles, um, and because of that day in Quilty, sitting on the cliffs. They wanted to get the sound of the ocean in there. So there's, uh, if you listen closely, you can hear uh, some sounds that are supposedly waves crashing on the rocks and stuff. So that was exciting for me. I'd never done anything like that before. Um, and it was, you know, it was a great, it was, th that long set of reels was the opening track. You know, it was kind of a risk for our law, but he didn't, he, he was into it, fair play to him. Let's listen now to the Irish tune, The Sailor's Bonnet, on the Arlo Guthrie album, recorded in 1972, titled Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, featuring a young Kevin Burke on the fiddle. Thank you. 
Well, that brings to a close part one of our two-part podcast featuring my interview with Kevin Burke. In part two, Kevin explores the relationship between the electric guitar and the violin, two instruments that are sometimes associated with altered states of consciousness. Kevin also talks about his violin bow that was a gift to him from his brother Noel Burke, a world-renowned bow maker living in Ireland, who I later interviewed. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I leave you now with some words from Woody Guthrie as timely now as when he first uttered them. I hate a song that makes you think you're not any good. I hate a song that makes you think that you're just born to lose, bound to lose, no good to nobody, no good for nothing. Because you're too old or too young or too fat or too slim or too ugly or too this or too that. Songs that run you down or poke fun at you on account of your bad luck or hard traveling. I'm out to fight those songs to my very last breath of air and my last drop of blood. I'm out to sing songs that will prove to you that this is your world and that if it has hit you pretty hard and knocked you for a dozen loops, no matter what color, what size you are, how you are built, I'm out to sing the songs that make you take pride in yourself and in your work. 